Our scripture this morning is John 7, verses 25 through 36. John 7, 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersions among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. This is the word of the Lord. God. Please be seated. Let's pray once again and ask for God's blessing on the preached word this morning. Father, we do thank you for giving us your holy, inspired, life-giving, all-sufficient, world-changing word. We pray now that you would send your spirit to help us understand and apply the truths of this text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We all face many important questions in this life. Questions like, should I go to college or should I go to trade school? If I go to college, what major should I decide on? Whom should I marry? How many kids should we have? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? Where should we live? Where should we go to church? What career path should I choose? Getting more philosophical, we ask questions like this. What is the meaning of life? Where does evil come from? What happens when we die? These are all important questions that we all face. But there's one question that far outweighs all these questions, and every person alive must answer this one question. And the question is simply this. Is Jesus the Christ? And that brings us to John 7, 25 to 36 this morning. Christ is not Jesus' last name. That word Christ means the Messiah or the anointed one. As we know from last week, Jesus is now uh, in Jerusalem at the temple preaching. It's during the Feast of Booths. And his words and his works are so impressive that people begin to wonder, is this guy the Messiah? Is he the long-awaited Christ? Is he God's anointed one? Has he finally come to deliver us, to redeem us, to throw off the shackles of Rome and to restore all of creation? Could this guy be the one that we've waited for for all these years? Is Jesus the Christ? 
If he is the Christ, that means that you and I can have hope, the forgiveness of sins. We can know God. We can experience heaven. And if he's not the Christ, we are in big trouble. So, is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah? The people in this text are asking that very question. In fact, the, the word Christ appears three times in this passage. This passage is the first time in John's gospel where this question is raised formally. Is Jesus the Christ? And John presents four lines of evidence that it, the answer is yes. Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. Well, what are those four reasons? Jesus possessed messianic origins, messianic protection, messianic signs, and a messianic destination. First, Jesus had messianic origins. What do I mean? Jesus originated from Bethlehem. Look with me at John 7, 25 to 27. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So what's happening here is the crowds realize that the leaders want to kill Jesus because of his teaching and his claims. But they realize he's still teaching. So they wonder, well, maybe the authorities actually think that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. That's why they haven't killed him or kept him from teaching. Then they think, well, no, he can't be the Christ. And that brings us to verse 27. They say, but we know where this man comes from. We know where Christ comes from, Nazareth. And when the Christ appears, when the Messiah appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, around this time, uh, a misreading of Malachi 3.1 from the Old Testament caused some people to think that when the Messiah came, nobody would know where he came from. But if you know the Bible well, you know that Micah 5.2 very specifically says the Messiah will come from what town? Bethlehem, which is exactly where Christ came from. So they are ignorant of the Scriptures. Christ came from Bethlehem, the town the Messiah was prophesied to come from. So we know that Jesus is the Messiah because he originated from Bethlehem. In addition... We know that he's the Messiah because he originated, more importantly, from God. Look at verse 28 and following with me. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. Christ is saying to the Jews, you don't know God the Father which was a huge diss to them. Then he says in verse 29, but I know him, I know God the Father, for I come from him and he sent me. Now Christ is making an astonishing claim. He is claiming that he is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father because he's saying the Father sent me to you, which means that Christ existed before the incarnation. Before Bethlehem, Christ was with the Father, and he was sent by the Father to earth to be the Messiah, to rescue all of humanity from the incredible destructive power of sin. 
So Christ is claiming that he's the Messiah because he comes from God the Father. And again, this claim indicates that Jesus is fully divine. Just as important, this claim clearly indicates that salvation must come from God. Our problem was so bad that God had to send his own son to be our Messiah or the Christ, which means that there is nothing you can do to save yourself, which means you must totally give up on all self-salvation efforts. You can't read the Bible enough or pray enough or go to church enough or serve enough or give enough for God to save you. Your situation is far worse. God requires perfection. And the only way for us to be saved was for God to send his own son, our Messiah, to earth to rescue us. Which raises the question, have you totally and entirely given up on yourself? Are you resting entirely in the person and work of Jesus? Are you finding joy in the gospel? Are you repenting of both your bad deeds and the good things you do to earn favor with God? Because you can never ever do enough and when you think that your good works earn favor with God, you are offending Jesus and you're saying, Christ, your works were not good enough, I'm gonna help you. How do we know that Jesus was the Messiah. First, Jesus had messianic origins, but there's more. Second, Jesus had messianic protection. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So the people are seeking to arrest Jesus because they recognize what he's claiming. He's claiming to be equal with God the Father, which was blasphemy in Jewish context. They want to kill him. They want to arrest him and put him to death. But John says that they couldn't lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And in John's gospel, his hour is a reference to his crucifixion. It was not yet his time to be crucified. So God the Father protected him from being crucified before the time. God the Father knew that Christ had to be uh, crucified not during the Feast of Booths, but during the Feast of Passover. Because then Christ would fulfill all the wonderful typology of the Passover. The Passover was a celebration of the angel of death passing over Israel and not judging them. And the angel of death passed over Israel because the Lamb of God had been slain. So it was not yet Christ's time to be crucified. Here's the point. God the Father protected the Messiah from harm until it was time for the Messiah to give up his life on the cross. The great scholar A.W. Pink says this, they could no more arrest Christ than they could stop the sun from shining. Until God's foreordained hour struck and the incarnate son bowed to his father's good pleasure, he was immortal. God the Father was protecting him in his providence until the time was right. Maybe you're thinking, well, Dave, 
It's great that God the Father protects Jesus, but what about me? God the Father also promises to protect you. Here's the amazing thing. Because God controls every single detail of the universe, he's in control of every detail of your life, and he's good, and he's using his divine providence to protect you from things you can't handle. Ephesians 1.11, Paul writes this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, not some things, but who works all things, good and bad, according to the counsel of his will. He rules and reigns over all things, therefore he has the power to protect you from the things that you can handle. You will not die before the appointed time. God is sovereign. He's protecting you from harm and from the evil one. Satan had to ask God for permission to harass Job, Job 1. Furthermore, Satan had to ask God for permission to harass Peter, Luke 22, 31. You are currently being protected by God's sovereign power, which does not mean your life will be easy. God sometimes allows you and I to experience incredibly hard things. Why? to make us more like Jesus. Following Christ does not lead to a life of roses and sunshine. But God promises to protect you from the things that will harm you, ruin you, and destroy your faith. He will preserve you until the end. And because God protects us, we can trust him. Do you trust him this morning for protection? The date was July of 1861. The location was the Battle of Bull Run, also known as the Battle of Manassas. The bullets were zipping through the air as numerous as raindrops in a southern storm. As a result, there were corpses everywhere in the battlefield. Thomas Jackson knew he was in big trouble. His side was losing. He knew he had to do something very fast to prevent more carnage, so he got on his horse, commanded his soldiers to follow him. Then he boldly charged up a hill through the chaos to close a gap in the line. And he sat on his horse on the top of this hill, and he barked out commands to his soldiers. And from there, he sat as bullets zipped by his head, his arms, his torso, his horse, and his legs. General Bernard B. saw Jackson from below. He pointed to Jackson and then yelled to his men, look, there, me look men, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. Follow the Virginians. Now why in the world did Stonewall Jackson, who by the way only lost one battle in the whole Civil War, why was he sitting there on his horse, like a stone wall, unafraid of all the bullets that were zipping by his head and his arms and his torso and his horse and his legs? His bodies dropped all around him, his horses dropped all around him, he just stood there, unafraid. Why? 
because Jackson was a staunch Presbyterian. And he believed firmly in meticulous providence. God controls everything, even stray bullets. Therefore, God can protect his own until it is time to die. None of you will die before the appointed time. God is protecting you like God protected his own son from dying before the appointed time. And if that's true, you and I can trust God. Because God is protecting you, nothing can separate you from his love. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all these hardships, all the pain and all the misery, we are more than conquerors. In the Greek there, it's we are super abundant conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In light of this, can you and I pray the words of Psalm 31, 14 to 15. The psalmist says, but I trust in you, O Lord. Can you say that this morning? But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. This morning, what do you need protection from? We will not experience heartache, pain, financial calamity, sickness, or death unless God sovereignly allows it. And if he allows it, it's because he loves you. And he wants to somehow mysteriously use that hardship for good in your life. God is protecting you until your work on earth is done. He protected the Messiah until his work on earth was done and he'll protect you as well. Jesus had messianic origins, messianic protection, and third, Jesus had messianic signs. Look at verse 31 with me. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ or the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Rhetorical question, no. Some people believe that Christ was the Messiah because they reasoned this way. Jesus is doing so many miracles. He's performing so many signs and wonders. Surely, when the Messiah comes, he's not going to do more than this guy. So this guy, Jesus, he must be the Messiah. 
because he's doing so many amazing things. They believed because of the signs. But there are far more signs 2,000 years later that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. For instance, consider numerous fulfilled prophecies. There are over 191 predictions about the coming of the Christ in the Old Testament. Many of these predictions were given from 1,000 B.C. to 500 B.C. Consider the specificity of some of these prophecies about Jesus. And these are incredibly specific, not the vague Nostradamus-type prophecies. He'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 700 years before Christ that was written. He'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. After his birth, he would flee to Egypt, Hosea 11.1. 1. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. He would be silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53. He'd be crucified with the criminals, Isaiah 53. His hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22, 16 and following. He'd be given vinegar and gall, Psalm 96. Soldiers would gamble for his coat, Psalm 22. Not one of his bones would be broken, Psalm 34. His side would be pierced, Zechariah 12, 10, and he would rise from the dead. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah 53, specifically describes 12 distinct aspects of Christ's suffering and crucifixion. This week I had a great conversation with a friend who's a skeptic of Christianity, and I brought up these prophecies, and he said, well, Dave, isn't it possible that the dates of Isaiah and the book of Psalms and the book of Daniel were wrong? I said, well, I guess that's possible, but you're going against a massive body of biblical scholarship. The vast majority of scholars, Christian and non-Christian, agree that Isaiah was written around 700 B.C. And the Psalms were written around 1,000 B.C. So these things were prophesied decades, centuries before Christ came. That's just special pleading on behalf of the skeptic. These prophecies, again, are incredibly specific. They describe where Christ would be born, how he would be, be, be betrayed, how he would die, and many other things. Peter Kreef, the prominent Boston College philosopher, wrote this. If you could calculate the probability of any one person fulfilling, surely by chance, all the Old Testament messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it would be as astronomical as winning the lottery every day for a century. And if that happened to you, your friends would all think the lottery is rigged. Even if Jesus deliberately tried to fulfill the prophecies, no mere man could have the power to arrange the time, place, events, and circumstances of his birth or events after his death. Jesus fulfilled numerous prophecies proving that he was the Messiah. These are signs. In addition, Jesus Christ rose from the grave proving that he was the Messiah. Let me just briefly cover the evidence. Jesus died. This is confirmed by both Christian and non-Christian scholars alike. The disciples were completely dejected and afraid when he died. Three days later, he rose from the grave and appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses. 
that the Apostle Paul encouraged skeptics to go talk to around 60 or 70 AD. These witnesses were transformed and full of faith. Many were so convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the grave that they were willing to suffer and die. Within a few months, over 10,000 staunchly monotheistic Jews who thought it was sinful to worship a human being began to worship Jesus because they were so convinced of the evidence for the resurrection. And the resurrected Christ continues to radically transform millions around the world today. Now, there are many other signs we could point to to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. I'm just scratching the, the surface here. This is just the tip of the iceberg. We don't lack signs proving that Jesus is the Christ. The question is simply this. What will you do with the signs? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're hearing what I'm saying, your punishment will be far worse than the day of judgment if you reject Jesus than the one who's never ever heard about the signs. You're going to be held accountable for being exposed to this evidence someday. You have all the evidence you need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you reject that evidence, you will be in deep trouble on the day of judgment. There's no excuses. The evidence is overwhelming. Well, Dave, I'm here at church. I believe Christ was the Messiah. But do you live like Christ is the Messiah? Do you believe what you believe? In other words, are you overwhelmed with hope at the prospect of heaven? Are you filled with joy because all your sins have been forgiven? Are you freely forgiving others as Christ the Messiah has forgiven you? Are you freely and extravagantly serving others because the Messiah has served you? Are you eager to tell your friends who don't know Jesus about the Messiah? Are you eager to read the scriptures to commune with the Messiah? If not, you and I need to ask for grace to believe what we believe. I was thinking this week about this and thinking, you know, Christianity, it's not that complicated. The reason that you and I grow so slowly is because we don't really believe what we believe. If we really believe these things, it will radically transform our lives and our communities and the world. So you and I need grace. We need to cry out to God through Jesus Christ and ask for more faith to believe what we believe about the Messiah. Jesus had messianic origins, messianic protection, messianic signs. There's one more. Fourth, he had a messianic destination. Well, where was he going? What was the Messiah's destination? He tells us he was heading to heaven to be with his father. 
Verse 32 and following, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to, to him who sent me. Verse 34, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying? Here it is again. You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Twice we read in this passage the words of Christ. He says to the religious leaders, you will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. What is he talking about? Jesus Christ, the divine Messiah, is about to suffer and die. Then he's going to rise from the grave, and then he's going to ascend to the Father. He's going to the Father's right hand to rule and reign over all things, pour out the Spirit, and constantly intercede for you and I. That's good news. The ascension of Jesus is part of the gospel. At the Father's right hand, Jesus Christ is right now praying for you if you're a saint by name. And he promises to return and make all things right and new. But the point Christ is making here is simply this. He's saying, where I am going, heaven the Father's right hand, you leaders cannot come. Why? Because they refuse to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's saying, I'm going to heaven and you're not coming with me because you will not believe. You won't humble yourself and believe. Now imagine... Some of your friends are planning a trip to Silverwood tomorrow, when the weather's a little nicer, hopefully. They describe in detail the glories of Silverwood, the water park, the rides that make you want to vomit, that all-you-can-drink soda for $10. Have you had that at Silverwood? It's like this big. It's so American. It's diabetes in a cup. <laughs> then they describe that ice cream cone that's also about this big at Silverwood. Have you had that? If you've had that, raise your hand. That's going to be in the new creation, by the way. <laughs> the Maui Wowie version of that ice cream cone. So your friends are describing Silverwood, the rides, the water park, the food, the magic show, the concerts. Then they say, we're going but you can't come. Well, maybe you're not into Silverwood, but maybe it's a cruise for 14 days to the Mediterranean. Sounds a little nicer if you're an adult, honestly. If you're over age 21, Silverwood's just not fun anymore. Especially if you have kids, you've got to drag around all day. But a Mediterranean cruise sounds a little more like my cup of tea. 14 days in the Mediterranean, sunny, warm, amazing food, beaches, history, hotels, shopping. 
everything your heart desires. Your friends plan that trip, and, they, and it's, it's going to cost a ton of money. But then they say, sorry, you can't come. We're going. It's going to be amazing, but you're stuck right here. You can't come. How would you feel? Heaven is far more glorious than Silverwood or a Mediterranean cruise, and Christ tells the religious leaders they can't come. And what makes this so awful is the glory of heaven, what they're missing out on. And it's described for us in Revelation 21, 1 to 4. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have shed tears or had pain or mourning in the last six months? Raise your hand. Heaven is the absence of all the things that are wrong with this world. In heaven, there'll be no more tears, no more sadness, no more mourning, no more diabetes, no more cancer, no more divorce, no more incest, no more rape, no more war, no more poverty, just joy and peace and laughter and the presence of the triune God. Heaven is not only the absence of all things sinful and evil, heaven will be an eternal party, a feast. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8 says this, describing heaven. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." What's been the happiest moment of your life so far? Your wedding day? The birth of your first child? 25th anniversary celebration? The day your, your kids finally left the home? I love my kids. I really do. But they have to leave at some point. What has been the best day of your life. The best day of your life in heaven will seem like a trip to the dentist. Because the joy of heaven, 
will make the joys of this earth pale in comparison. When you finally see Jesus face to face, theologians call this the beatific vision, the vision of blessedness. When you finally see him face to face, every cell in your body will explode with joy and for all eternity your joy will increase as you get to know the Savior more and more and more. We can never ever know all of God. He is infinite, he is inexhaustible, yet our joy comes from knowing him more, but in heaven we'll get to know him more and more and more and more over time, and our joy will increase more and more and more and more for all eternity. If you're a Christian, that's what awaits you. Joy, peace, laughter, fellowship with the triune God. The Messiah lived, died, and rose from the grave. Then he went to the Father's right hand, and he's now preparing a place for you if you are trusting him. Which raises the question, are you trusting him? Are you a Christian? Have you made a decision to turn away from the sins that ruin your life and put all your hope and confidence in Jesus? If you've done that, you have heaven to look forward to, all because of the work of the Christ or the Messiah. Life is full of questions. Who should I marry? Where should I live? What career path should I take? Where should I retire? When should I retire? How should I spend my retirement years? Yet, the most important question in life is none of those questions. The most important question is this. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Yes. How do we know? Jesus had messianic origins, messianic protection, messianic signs, and a messianic destination. Since he is the Messiah, you and I can have all of our sins forgiven we can have the hope of heaven, we can rejoice in all circumstances, and we can have fellowship with the triune God. Is he your Messiah this morning? Let's pray.